0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Turn with me to Acts chapter 28. I'm going to put up a map quickly to kind of bring you up to date. As you look at the map, uh, last week Jeremy did a wonderful job in getting us all the way from down there and right and then you see that squiggly line. And that kind of makes me laugh. I hope it does you too. Because all those people in the boat thought that they were going to be lost. They were tremendously afraid. And the Lord evidently led them all over the place. And they landed at Malta. If they'd have missed Malta, they might have been deep trouble. But God was in charge. And so we look at the... uh, first few verses, and when they had been brought safely through, then we found out that the island was called Malta, and the natives showed us extraordinary kindness, for because of the rain that had set in, and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on a fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer, and though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. However, Paul shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had waited a long time and had nothing seen happened to him that was unusual they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god can't you just imagine it Uh, they are stopped short of the shore the surf is going a bunch of them can't swim some can they're grabbing on anything that they can get a hold of and they come to the shore exhausted wet, cold, soaking wet, standing on the shore, all 276. All right. Amazing. At first, they weren't sure where they were. The name Malita is a Canaanite word for refuge, which we use the word uh, Malta. But I'm sure they hadn't landed there before like this, they had actually landed in the harbor before. Now because their speech was foreign to them, the author here says they are barbarians because their speech sounded like Barbar. I noticed that the author here was a little bit more kind and calls them natives. Uh, The original language says they had kindness beyond the norm. And they built a large bonfire, which would have been a big task to warm up 276 folks. But uh, that was certainly welcome. Not thinking he was a man of the cloth and above picking up sticks, we see the Apostle Paul gathering sticks to put on the fire. And all of a sudden, a viper comes out and grabs his hand. The natives know this snake and say, my goodness, he is going to die. And obviously, justice is going to be. He's obviously a murderer, and he deserves to die, and has been bitten by the viper. But then they keep watching, and nothing happens. And I think Luke, with uh, some humor, says, he must be a god. Luke knows he's not. So the Apostle Paul, by a satiricus route, saved by God's providential care, probably exhausted by the adventure, wet to the bone, greeted by extraordinarily kind natives, warmed by the fire, protected from a poisonous snake, gets a three-month break. Not true. No, he welcomes an unexpected chance to minister. Look at verse 7. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius, who welcomed us and entered, and entertained us courteously three days. And it came about that the father of Publius was lying in bed, afflicted with a recurrent fever and dysentery. And Paul went in to see him, and after he had prayed, he laid hands on him and healed him. And after this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. And they also honored us with many marks of respect. And when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all we needed. Obviously, Publius is a name that was a title. He was, as it says, the leading man of the island. And obviously, uh, he had a piece of land close to where they landed. Uh, So, even though they'd been received with uh, kindness and everything, note that uh, Paul's authority as an apostle had been established. In Mark 16, we know that apostles may pick up servants and not die and will hail hands on the sick and they recover. So Paul has demonstrated he's with authority that he's ready to minister. Luke, of course, has a set of spiritual gifts that makes him a doctor. Uh, These barbarians, as the note says, were not, in fact, uh, some naked slaves. They treat their guests with great kindness and courtesy and hospitality. I think they were searching because their pagan faith left them empty. I believe that this indicates they were people who were prepared to hear the gospel, moved by the Holy Spirit, working on their hearts to be open and respected. They had heard about Paul's healing. They now heard about the head man's healing, his father, because his father had been sick. And so they line up on shore To see the Apostle. Uh, Can't you just uh, envision this wonderful picture of the body of Christ at work? Here's Luke greeting people, probably trying to examine their throat. I don't know if they had one of those sticks in those days that looked at them or what. And then there's Apostle Paul. He's not so ministered in in them, but he's talking as fast as he can to everybody understand about Jesus. I don't think there's any social distancing taking place at all because they wanted to see what was going on, what was was going to happen to the next guy in line. I think Paul might have been thinking of this incident when in Ephesians chapter 2 he tells us that God has prepared a set of good works for us to walk in. So here he is ready to go to work. He sees this as an opportunity. My question is, uh, do we see life that way? Do we walk in keen anticipation of an opportunity that God might be laying before us? Have you discovered your spiritual gifts? If you have, I hope you've wrapped your life around them keenly waiting anticipation for the Lord to work through you. You never know when the Lord might deposit you on a shore of opportunity. Well, the last lap to Rome is in verse 11. And at the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship, which had wintered at the island and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. We put up the map right now. It'll help us get oriented. And after we would put in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we sailed around and arrived at Regulium. A day, and a day later, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Petolia. I'm sure I should pronounce that in some Italian way, but I don't have that quite down. There we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And thus we came to Rome. And the brethren, when they heard about us, came up from there as far as the market of Appius and their three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Well, if you look at the map, you can see that the sailors were waiting, waiting for a wind from the west because then they could point to the north and go on a beam reach, the wind coming over the port side and going up. And they stop at Syracuse uh, first. Well, they've been there for three months. And when they embarked on this uh, Alexandria ship, and you'd see Alexandria way down in Egypt, and so this was the trade route in which wheat got to Italy. In those days, uh, ships were named after their figurehead. That was the emblem on the front of the ship, on the bow. Many of them were quite decorative. In this case, the twin brothers would represent Castor and Pollux, patrons of navigation and favorite objects of a sailor's devotion. Another term, figurehead, that comes from our sailing world. Their constellation, Gemini, was considered a sign of good fortune in a storm. But I'm sure as this crew got uh, aboard that they uh, weren't worried about Gemini taking care of them. Well, they anchored on the port port, uh, there of Syracuse on the east coast of Sicily. And here they spend three days. And when the wind was from the west and they got to Syracuse, it probably calmed down a little bit at night. So they probably had to stop there and uh, it had two old harbors there and it was the most important city of Sicily. Well, the wind came up, they weighed anchor and arrived at Regalium. As you can see on the map, it's right at the toe of Italy. It's right across from the Straits of Messina and uh, those straits there are about six miles wide at that point. I'm sure that the centurion's business there in the port of Petoli, where they sailed to next, uh, probably uh, was, I don't know, passports and visas and all that stuff. And if you brought a prisoner in, maybe it made the red tape even worse. Uh, So they're staying there seven days, and then they begin their walk to Rome. Uh, a few miles from Patoli, brought them to the Appian Way. And the Appian Way was the major north-south route in Italy, one of the great Roman roads that the Romans had put in place, a north-south corridor just like Interstate 5. But their news of the approach had already reached the Christians in Rome probably from the brothers in Petoli who sent word up the highway, gee, the apostle is coming. So there's a group that meet them. One at Appi Forum, that's the marketplace of Appius. That was 43 miles south of the capital. Another met them at Trestrabernae, the three taverns, a halting place 30 miles from Rome. I think this verse was put in by Paul and said, hey, wait a minute, you're out of order a little bit. But he was very encouraged on this occasion. He had longed to be in Rome for a long time. Three years earlier, he had sent them a letter called the Book of Romans. The most complete, exhaustive, wonderful proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we have. And I have a hunch that that exposition probably had changed their lives. It has some of us. In the first chapter of Romans, Paul says to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. And now the apostle is about to see the reality of what happened when he sent that book. Men and women, only a small part probably of the body of Christ now at Rome, show up, walk that far to give him a reception. And I think with all the misgivings he might have had at this time, he's just wonderfully refreshed to see these people coming to meet him. Probably at times they thought, well, gee, I wonder how I'll be received. But he's wonderfully received. Uh, lost my place here, but we're going to find it. I think that Paul keeps his thoughts together when he first gets there because as we look at the text... it says when he entered rome paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who was guarding him and then after 3 days in verse 17 he called together those who were the leading men of the jews and when they had come together he began saying to them brethren though i had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers yet i was delivered i was delivered prisoner from jerusalem into the hands of the romans And when they examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground for putting me to death. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar, not that I had any accusation against my nation. Uh, Can you believe the wonderful statement that that is? Do you remember the trouble that Paul had had with the Jews? Uh, note that as he's calling these people together, he realizes that he's been called first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. So he wants to make sure that they know he's in town and meets with them first. Now we know from the inscriptions at that time that there were probably at least 14 or maybe 10 uh synagogues in Rome. So if he had been able to travel, he probably would have visited them first. But uh, he can't go, so he calls them. We do not know exactly why they came, but maybe they found out that he had been a member of the Sanhedrin. So they agreed to respond. But please note what Apostle says and does not say. He simply explains his predicament, pointing out that he's an innocent victim of the strange hostility that the Jews have toward him. He was careful to say as little as possible about the national authorities in Jerusalem. And when he says he's delivered into the hands of the Romans, he could have said, quote, I was rescued by Roman soldiers from a Jewish mob who are trying to beat me to death. However, look at verse 19. He declares he has no accusation against his nation. Wow. What an amazing statement. What a model of forgiveness Paul presents. How gracious is his forgiving spirit. We know during his three missionary journeys that he's been hounded by Jewish zealots. They caused him trouble in every city. They aroused the populace against him, falsely accusing him of being promoting insurrection. They stoned him and scourged him and left him for dead. But Paul speaks not one word of resentment to them, not one word of indictment or vindictiveness. He absolves them, of any charge oh how i wish that i had that kind of forgiveness present in my own heart i don't see forgiveness as saying that what the other person did was all right but if i forgive them i freely absolve the person who did something against me without harboring any continuing resentment in my heart that's what just what jesus did on the cross didn't he he said father forgive them for they know not what they do the holy spirit can empower me to do the same in me if i let him but i don't know about you but i certainly struggle with a complete, honest, heartfelt forgiveness when somebody does something against me. I pray that the Holy Spirit will empower me to forgive like that. Now at verse 20, Paul uh, reaches out and says gives a reason. For this reason, therefore, I requested to see you and to speak with you, for I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. What was the hope of Israel? The Messiah. The promised hope that he was coming. It was the nation's long time and ancestral hope that cost Paul his freedom and brought him under guard to Rome. And the Messiah is still the sticking point almost 2,000 years later. This is still the crucial issue in Israel. It still remains a thorn in the flesh for the Jewish community. But notice at this time, uh, the Jewish leader's response is a model of diplomacy. And they said to him, We have neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. And then they say something very interesting. For concerning this sect, it is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. So, no one had showed up. To bring charges. Now, they could have been delayed. They could have been uh, shipwrecked like Paul had, not gotten there yet. But on the other hand, for two years, the Roman authorities keep Paul there, waiting for someone to show up to accuse him. So, in verse 23 and 24, uh, comes a meeting that is just one of those times in Scripture gee, I wish I could have been there. And when they had set a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. And he was explained to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets and from morning until evening. Uh, You remember the school at Tyrannus in, in Ephesus where Paul taught for two years? Miss that one. Do you remember when Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus and he's teaching them again from Moses and the prophets about the Messiah? Miss that one too. I hope the Lord has a video of these occasions, because I'd really see it. I don't know if they got YouTube and heaven, it, but it'd be a great to be here. This is a magnificent Bible study. I've loved and I missed it. Rather large number of Jews. They have certainly a competent teacher. They didn't need scrolls because both of them probably had much of the Torah memorized. And now Paul has a chance to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah. He probably uses many of the illustrations already that we've seen in the book of Acts. The debate must have been lively and passion. Boy, I missed it. But look at the discouraging results in verse 25. And when they did not agree with one another because they started discussing it between themselves, they began leaving after Paul had spoken a parting word. Notice the parting word that Paul uses. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers, saying go to this people and say you will keep on hearing but will not understand you will keep on seeing but not perceive for the heart of this people was becoming dull and with their ears they scarcely hear and they have closed their eyes that they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn again and I should heal them wow uh, this is a quote, as I mentioned from Isaiah. It's also the same passage that Jesus had used, and in the Luke's Gospel, he was teaching the men on the road to Emmaus, and at the end of that, said, "O foolish men, and slow of heart, to believe." When I was a pastor at Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto for twenty years, we used to study the Scripture together as a, as a team, and we were studying the Book of Romans together. The pastors there at that time, and we invited a rabbi from Stanford University to join us. One of our pastors was a uh, college pastor at the time, had, had a ministry on Stanford campus, was good in Hebrew, and he would meet with, a mabba, with this rabbi. So we invited this young rabbi to join us to exegete Romans together. He was as good in Greek as anybody we had. He was excellent in Hebrew since he was a rabbi. And he could go through and exegete Romans as well as we could. And week after week, we would present to him, but Jesus was the Messiah. And his final conclusion, and we became friends, would have a meal with him. What did he say? Well, Jesus may be your Messiah, but he's not mine. And I had a living example of the blindness that the Jewish community still has. But I bet when Jesus shows up and they find out he's really Messiah, everything's going to click. I pray that day comes soon. Wow. So, I think we learn from that that only the Holy Spirit that can bring someone to Jesus. Are we to teach? Yes. Encourage? Yes. Be able to give an account of the hope that's in us? Yes. Practice giving our testimony to the refrigerator three times a week? Yes. But it's only Jesus that can bring somebody to Jesus. So what's the best thing we can do? Pray. Pray that the Holy Spirit will penetrate that covering, that mask that is covering them. But this is not the end. This is just the beginning. Notice that Paul says to them in verse 28, Let it be known to you, therefore, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. The Lord is taking advantage of the fact that the Jewish nation is not listening and we Gentiles get the focus. Then it says in verse 30 and 31, and he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. Unhindered is a word of triumph. Paul was hindered, but the gospel wasn't hindered. He was confined to quarters, but the word was going out. And with, all, with the open openness of all the Roman authorities that knew obviously what was going on because he was right next to the Roman garrison, for a period of two years, he was free to minister to anyone that showed up. And the body of Christ in Rome was furnishing all his necessities. And how is Paul handling his confinement? I think his, how he's doing that is very instructive to this authority. Now, I have some good Christian friends, and uh, you probably do, or maybe yourself, are very frustrated by this confines of COVID-19. Some of you might fit that category. But let's contrast that with a model that the Apostle Paul has. He's changed to a guard 24-7. He doesn't uh, write us anything about that he's frustrated that some of those guards actually snore at night. Nor is he upset that it's a bit inconvenient when he has to go up in the bathroom in the middle of the night. He also doesn't complain that all of the women in the body of Christ in Rome always send fried chicken uh, for his meals. What is he doing? Well, first of all, he's an evangelist. He's witnessing a man by the name of Onisibus comes to Christ. And Paul has to write a letter to his owner, Philemon. is a runaway slave, obviously Philemon is his owner. And what does Paul says to Philemon? He says, to appeal for forgiveness for my child, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. He also writes a letter to the Ephesians, to the Philippians, and to the Colossians. And from those letters, we find out he's put together quite a ministry team. Epaphras, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke are labeled as his fellow workers. That's not a bad team. What is the theme of the letter he writes to Philippi? Joy. In the first chapter to Philippians, he says, "'I have you in my heart. I long for you with affection of Jesus Christ.'" Yes, he misses those folks. But what is his perspective? What's his focus? Well, guess what? My circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And then probably adds with a smile, so that my imprisonment has become well known to all of the guards of the governor's palace. And then he probably smirks. (laughs) They don't have any choice. They get ordered to get chained to me four hours at a time. And I talk a lot. Paul says his perspective. Not that I speak from what I... Not that I speak from what I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. And adds, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And he reminds us in the Ephesians letter that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him, that we should walk in them. So Paul is delighted with the fact that he has this opportunity. And what is Paul's greatest contribution to the body of Christ during those two years of contentment? Letters. I don't think Paul knew at all at that time that those letters would become part of permanent scripture and they would encourage millions and millions of Christians over many years. I'm kind of fearful that some of us may let the COVID-19 opportunity pass us by. So join me in making two requests of our Lord. First, in these circumstances, show me what I need to learn about myself. How am I handling this? What am I doing about it? What's my perspective? Why is that my perspective? Second, show me the good works that you're asking me to walk into. I think the text suggests that letters are important. Uh, In my 24 years in the army, followed by 24 years in the pastorate, but 24 years in the army, I was gone for my wife for an extended period of time, several times. For instance, uh, 12 months in Vietnam and 13 months in Korea. And what did I most cherish during that time? Letters from my wife. Not emails. Didn't find her on Facebook. In fact, there wasn't any phone. The only phone call I got that entire time in Vietnam was through Mars Radio, military-associated radio system that came through people who were. people that were running, what, um, ham radio system, telling me that my son had been born. That was the only call I got. But Marty did send letters. Now, at times, the post office was a bit slow and mixed up, so they didn't all come nicely spaced out. They kind of came in bunches. So I had this rule. Look at the date on them so you make sure you read them in order second of all never read more than one in a day thirdly put one in your pocket of your uniform so no matter where you were in, out in the field or wherever you were you always had one they were wonderful encouragement to me what do you think I think a real letter, one that you can feel and fold and cherish and put in your rainy day file when you need it, are wonderful. Maybe there's a letter you ought to send to someone you're unable to visit during this time. Maybe somebody that's afraid to have company. Maybe to a family member from whom you're estranged. Maybe to someone at Overseas, maybe in the army. To someone in a nursing, nursing home who can't have visitors. Maybe to the person the Holy Spirit has led you to think about as you've been listening to this. You see, this wasn't the end for Paul. This was just the end of his current story. This is not... end of the book of Acts. This is not the end of Paul's ministry. It's not the end of COVID-19. It's just a new beginning, a new beginning for ministry. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the Apostle Paul. We thank you that Dr. Luke traveled with him and recorded these incidents. We thank you for his model of apostleship. We thank you for his wonderful concern for the people. We thank you for his gifts. We thank you, Lord, that he could see every incident as an opportunity thank you that he always kept his focus to go to the Jew first and then to the Gentile but Lord mostly we thank you for his letters they mean so much to us we pray Lord during this time that we would see our confinement as a time to minister To step out, to encourage, to build up. We thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name.